Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing the best of my Times radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, on your Times radio app. And actually, today was probably the sort of day we should have been listening live to the whole show, because there was an awful lot happening. But fear not, we've rounded up all the best bits. We've got the best analysis of what the three by-election results actually mean. Patrick Maguire, new Times columnist and Times Radio senior political correspondent, just been announced. He joins me alongside John Curtis to pick over the entrails of it all and actually separate the spin from the realities. That's coming up in just a moment. We'll have the columnist panel as well. But first, as we always do on a Friday, let's take a look at what we learned this week. We learned that Simon Mayo once dabbled in politics. In fact, I set up my own political party, which was only joined by my sister, and so we were the only two members. It was called the Independent Social Democratic and Radical Liberal Party. We learned how they changed the siren on police cars. Can I ask you a really stupid question? Go on. About you pressing the horn? Yeah. So it just changes the, um, the type of siren. We learned that Keir Starmer won't say that things can only get better. And obviously 97 was last time. And the mood then was one of growing optimism. That song, Things Can Only Get Better, that's not the position now, by a long shot. Raising the prospect that things might actually get worse. We learned that Tobias Elwood was a bad choice as the new presenter for A Place in the Sun. It feels different now that the Taliban have returned to power. Well, it may be hard to believe, but security has vastly improved, corruption is down, and the opium trade has all but disappeared. We learned at PMQs that nobody is good at maths. Everybody knows that I'm a fan of doing maths to 18, but the honourable gentleman makes a very strong case for doing maths all the way to 61, quite frankly. Uh, Mr Speaker, if he's so good at maths, then I'm 60, not 61. We learned uh, of a big tech investment in my Somerset homeland by offended some people by slipping into my native dialect. Yes, Bridgewater is getting a battery factory. 
We learn that John Cooper's building and pointing out soddy new builds on TikTok. And how would you like your windows, sir? I'd like them all cracked, please. That window is cracked, this window's cracked, that window's cracked, everything's cracked. That is ridiculous. But most of all, we learn that Boris Johnson could well have held on to his seat in Uxbridge if he'd stood in the recall election instead of running off. And that is what we learned this week. More heart-hitting analysis of the by-elections coming up. Now, let's kick off with today's columnist panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, and normally on a Friday we'd have Night at the Marriott, but India Knight and James Marriott are both away. We don't know if they're together. I'm not one to gossip. So, instead, we are joined by, from The Spectator, James Hill. Morning, James. Morning. We've at least got a James, if not the James. <laughs> and I am one to gossip, don't worry. <laughs> well, exactly. That's what you're here for. That's what you're here for. And uh, from uh, Politico, uh, Eleni Kouir is here. Hi, Eleni. Hi, morning. I mean, I know from personal experience you're not averse to gossip, Eleni. Definitely. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> my job is <laughs> to publish pure gossip. Pure not gossip. really interested in news. Pure gossip, pure <laughs> gossip. Now, um, clearly, we should talk about the uh, the by-election result. It's a sort of the, the perfect news result, because everybody can point at a good thing while slightly ignoring the bad thing. Um, what, it, it, what's your sort of main top-line takeaway, first of all, James? Um, I think that Uxbridge has really been a bit of a fig leaf here. Obviously, it was a bad night for the Conservatives. I think sort of 20 points on average across uh, swing away from the Conservatives across the board. Uh, and I think for me, the really interesting story is going to be about tactical voting here and how much better it's got in terms of opposition parties in trying to sort of turn the Tories out across the country. Whether that can hold for a general election is going to be the big thing next year. And Eleni, your, your, your big takeaway? Yes, I, I mean, I really agree with James. I think Selby uh, is a massive victory for Labour. And that would be what we were talking about had Uxbridge not been run, uh, narrowly won by the Tories. So that's given Rishi Sunak something to, you know, um, claim that he's not on track to lose the next general election very badly. But um, I think the Tories have a lot to be worried about actually here. Um, and I, we should talk about the Lib Dems, not least because we've just had... Ed Davies stunt. Now, previously, he's, what, burst a balloon, a blue pin, a blue balloon with a pin. He's knocked down hay bales with a tractor. He had a clock to say it's time's up for uh, the Tories. This time, he's had a cannon with uh, get the clowns out, time to get the clowns out, written on the side of it. So it's a circus-themed thing. Uh, and then he sort of, it's, it's just a cardboard cutout, it's not a real cannon. And then he sort of pretended to light it with a sort of comedy cartoon sort of fuse. Anyway, this is what happened. It's time for a general election to end this conservative circus. It's time to get these clowns out of number 10. Five, four, three, two, one. Is Ed David cheering there? Because this one worked, unlike the clock, which didn't uh, last time. Um, uh, unfortunately, there wasn't a, a sort of clown Rishi Sunak which fired out of the cannon, though, James. I think I feel like that's what it was missing. Well, I think so. And I, what I would think is the next by-election that's probably going to happen, which might be uh, mid-Bedfordshire, where the, the Lib Dems have a really good chance. And I think Nadine Dorry's career offers a whole host of kind of visual metaphors and imagery, which the Lib Dems will have fun <laughs> trying to explore. Are they going to be, do you think, I'm a celebrity related? I was I was thinking of kangaroo's testicles. Yes, uh, I'm not sure. We'll see how far he wants to go with that. As always, as always, um, lady, do you think the Lib Dems can take you know another big by-election win and, and turn it into 
you know, it's going to be much harder for them fighting 600-odd seats rather than one, essentially. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, the Lib Dems are incredibly good at winning these by-elections. They're incredibly good at running these localised campaigns where they hone in on the issues in um, these sort of blue wall constituencies uh, where there's a lot of disgruntled Tories. But as you were saying earlier, Matt, the, they've they've not really managed to translate that into a national, kind of an increase in their national poll lead. And I think it will be much tougher when we come to a general election and they're not really able to give, you know, kind of contradictory messages um, to people in different constituencies. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, we should also talk about, let's talk about the in-betweeners. Because uh, winning in Selby, uh, Keir Mather, he's only 25. Uh, not, I mean, the big surprise, I suppose, for him, his perspective, is getting selected to go up against a 20,000 Tory majority and then actually getting elected. Uh, but this was the Tory minister, Johnny Mercer, on Sky News, uh, comparing Keir Mather to a character from the school-based sitcom, The Inbetweeners. I think it's always good to get new people in, in politics. I mean, I, I think we mustn't become a sort of uh, repeat of The Inbetweeners, right? So um, I think you've got to have people who what have do you mean by that? done stuff. Well, this guy has, has, you know, he's been at Oxford University more than he's been in a job. <laughs> How old are you, James? Uh, I'm 28, so I'm oh. feeling old today. Ah. Um, <laughs> is he right to mock a 25-year-old who's been elected like that? I think, uh, look, there's a whole history of people going on to do great things in politics from a very young age. Uh, you think, you know, Gladstone, ben, Tony Benn, uh, Abalfa, Churchill, etc., all 25 or younger when they were elected. I think it was his attempt to have a bit of fun with it. Um, and I think, as I say, much more, it's about character and substance rather than the actual age at which you're elected. I mean, I don't know if I'd have wanted to be an MP at 25, Elena. What about you? Definitely want, I don't want to be an MP at 25, don't want to be an MP at... 55. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing for me is that um, I was having coffee with somebody from Labour earlier this week who was saying that Rishi Sunak in Dan having Rishi Sunak in Downing Street feels like we're being run by the in by, you know people from the in between us, him and some of his advisors. You know, slightly kind of nerdy. Um, and actually, um, Rishi, we we get every single time we do PMQs on a Wednesday, someone will message in and say Rishi Sunak sounds like Will for the in between us. So, <laughs> yeah. So maybe. Uh, <laughs> maybe that's um, maybe yeah you should have maybe picked a slightly different um, um, choice let's move on because we'll talk more about the by-elections later on but uh, new Whitehall reforms can see government officials and ministers have to declare when someone has tried to lobby them by phone or WhatsApp. We've talked a lot about lobbying before. Uh, my favourite story being uh, ministers at party conference where people just bump into them and go oh I'm ever sorry can I just mention to you the company that I work for, they can go off and bill ministers. But now they might have to declare if they're lobbied on WhatsApp. This seems like, as ever, Whitehall very slowly catching up with technology, Eleni. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've seen from the COVID inquiry and um, the controversies around Boris Johnson's WhatsApp messages, but also just the general and Matt Hancock's WhatsApp messages earlier this year as well, which were leaked, um, how much people in government use WhatsApp. But we know that it's extremely, it's, you know, used for all levels of communication. So this feels massively overdue, but it's good that finally some you know rules are being put in place. What's interesting is that increasingly ministers are using disappearing messages on WhatsApp. So I don't know how that ends up affecting, you know, it, given that the messages can disappear after, you know, a day or a week. Um, I don't know how much that ends up affecting transparency because it's easy to hide these communications. Isn't the issue here, James, it's actually saying that there will be a, that you'd be compelled but if you are a senior official or, or a government minister, 
that in the same way you have to declare if you have a coffee with someone who lobbies you, you would have to declare that someone has tried to lobby you via phone or text. Yeah, I mean, the onus is going to be on the person to declare it. And for understandable reasons, they may be uh, less forthcoming and willing to give those information. Um, I think if you look at kind of the current transparency logs we have, they're clearly not updated regularly. Um, they're a bit of a joke, actually, because it suggests that some cabinet ministers don't meet a single journalist all year, which uh, I find hard to believe. Um, but also, I think it shows really how all the things that have been going on in Whitehall and Westminster have affected the kind of rules. And they are kind of outdate outdated. Uh, the stuff on WhatsApp is clearly out of date. It's does not, it doesn't actually sort of keep up with the trends of what ministers are actually doing. Um, but also, this was drawn up in response to what happened with Greensill, and that was two years ago. So it's a belated attempt to kind of address <laughs> these issues. Um, you know, even though the whole political scene has moved very much on from since then and i suppose it goes back to the point james that, that, that actually you, you you'd like to think that people who are in politics are abided by the rules doing the right thing you know and actually it's this slightly sort of pernicious idea that they're all breaking the rules all the time in it for themselves dodging mm -hmm. scrutiny and actually most of them just aren't no, I, and I, I do have some sympathy in reading what came out from the Telegraph WhatsApp messages as well. I think you could see a variation of the things where, you know, different ministers respond in different ways. So, you know, Ben Wallace was added to one of these WhatsApp groups during COVID and just immediately left because he, he, he didn't think it was the right thing. Other ministers probably, clearly were junior ministers perhaps felt pressured by their boss to be involved in these kind of WhatsApp groups and discussing things in informal channels. Um, and I don't, and I say, I don't think it's necessarily about malice or, or incompetence, but the problem is if the procedures break down, uh, you know, that leads to bad policymaking as a result. And when we try and sort of assign the historical blame or kind of learn lessons, etc., for things like the National Archives or COVID inquiry, there just aren't the sort of records there. So it's important to kind of make sure we're looking at these things in a 21st century way. Now, where do you get your news from? That's a good question. Do you get your news from TikTok? Apparently, the social media app has become the most popular news source for 12 to 15-year-olds, according to Ofcom. Well, Dylan Page known as the News Daddy, is one of the most popular news readers uh, on TikTok. He's got over 8 million followers. This is terrifying footage showing what would happen to your flesh if you were bitten by a Komodo dragon. A mother has just given birth to a baby whilst underneath the rubble of a collapsed building after the earthquake. Today I learned that there is a type of bee that exclusively eats rotting meat and this is what their bloody hives look like. China have just responded after their spy balloon was shot down. In a statement shortly after they said, China expresses its strong dissatisfaction and protest against the US using force to attack civilian unmanned airships. Several times they said that a man is six times more likely likely to go bald if his ring finger is longer than his index finger. Wow, there's a lot to take in there. And Dylan joins us now. Hi, Dylan. <laughs> hello, hello. Uh, I always find it uh, very interesting for the videos which, uh, which are chosen for that intro. <laughs> you covered a lot of ground there. All human life was there. So how did you get into delivering news on TikTok uh, to build up 8 million followers? Yeah, I mean, it's happened over quite a period of time. But, you know, I started with just interesting content that I, I was seeing on the internet. And I thought that, yeah, this is great for, for everyone to see. And it wasn't news at all, really. And then uh, as time goes on, you know, the, the stuff that I was generally interested in happened to be in the news. And so <clears throat> I guess you just lean into what your audience wants to see. And uh, it's kind of it started getting comments like, thanks, News Daddy, in the comments. <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. So uh, that name kind of stuck. Oh, so it and, came, from uh, the, came from the comments rather than you deciding that's what you were going to be? Yeah, well, I, yeah, it's definitely not self-proclaimed news, Daddy. It was uh, it was a name given to me, which I thought was hilarious. So, um, you know, I, I went with it and it, it, it stuck. So, 
Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's clearly word to build up such a massive following. Uh, James and Eleni, um, do, we, do either of you get your news from TikTok? Are you, either, do you, are you on TikTok, James? Uh, no, I'm not. Um, I think I get my uh, news from Eleni's playbook when she writes that uh, in the morning. And the Times. Uh, and the Times, James. Oh, and the Times. Oh, <laughs> sorry, yes. And uh, so those two main things, really. But so more, much more traditional. Um, but I do appreciate, you know, the, the story out today about, you know, 12 to 15 year olds mostly uh, getting their news from it. And it's going to be something we have to take, you know, be aware of is that most young people absorb their information from video, uh, from sort of TikTok brief clips, etc., rather than traditional print media. What about you, lady? I haven't got TikTok either. I think the 28 is like slightly on the borderline. <laughs> Are you too old? <laughs> Are you getting a little bit too TikTok? old for TikTok. I'm on TikTok, although I haven't put anything on there for ages. I did You're it. You're very useful. It was, hmm. Well, it was one of those. It just it just requires a lot of energy to be across all of the plat. You know, it's true. Now we've got threads as well. Um, now there's an interesting question though, uh, Dylan, about the, is uh, James making in terms of like regulation because obviously you can post whatever you like to your eight million followers on TikTok, and I know you're very responsible, but you know, in a way that the eight million people listening to my show or watching the ten o'clock news on the BBC, you know, there are rules about the way you do the news in terms of accuracy and impartiality and all that sort of stuff. Are you conscious of that at all? Yeah, absolutely. I think what people fail to remember is that with creators, just like any company or business, you're managing a personal brand. And with that personal brand, if you're someone who deliberately or continuously, you know, spreads information that isn't quite accurate, your personal brand dies off very quick and you're not a reliable source for information. So to be successful on whatever platform you are as a content creator, um, you know, reliability is kind of built in as a metric for success. That's interesting. You you sort of feel like, because actually some people might say, if you look at, I don't know, for instance, Donald Trump, uh, not being entirely accurate with uh, the information you're passing on is, is sort of part of how he's built his brand. And there are lots of people in corners of the internet who've done that. But you feel like that's part of your being a trusted source that people can come back to and know, oh, that thing that he posted last week was right. So this thing will be right. Yeah, I think it's all about longevity. I mean, there's lots of people which will get a lot of uh, attention quickly on the internet through just sharing shock value content or, you know, stuff that's, you know, reaching. But those are the kind of people who die out very quickly. Um, I think I anyone that's that's been here for a long time, you look at traditional news sources like the BBC and the Times, been around for a long time, there's, there's a reason for that. So I think, uh, again, the, the accuracy of information of what you're giving as a news content creator, it's it's built in as a metric for success. Um, James, do you feel like the government regulators are sort of ready to to address this? Because it felt a bit like when when the Leveson inquiry happened, it went on for such a long time. Everyone gave their evidence. This enormous report appeared. There was basically no mention of the internet in it. Uh, it was all about regulating essentially hard copy printed newspapers and the websites of those newspapers being caught in that but then you know nothing about what you do about everything else that's been posted online and it feels a bit like by the time ministers and regulators wake up to what's going on on social media sites that the, the problem will be completely outside of their control 
Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the government and in fairness, the media as well being quite behind the trend on this issue. I think most journalists, we aren't on TikTok, etc. Uh, it's not where, our, you know, our audience is, but that's where the audience of the future is going to be. For me, the question so isn't so much about government. It's about the companies themselves. And basically, it's uploading content on the whims of TikTok and the content moderation that they do. And there have been issues we've seen on things like Facebook and Twitter and other platforms as well, which is what happens when you put something up, which is contentious. Obviously, during COVID, there were issues around sort of vaccines, etc. And, uh, you know, masks, and they, whether they work or not. And I think in terms of TikTok, there's been some controversy about their, their owners, ByteDance, which are based in China. And of course, does, are they going to be subject to the whims of what uh, the Chinese authorities, any pressure that they can put on them? And so there have been quite a few sort of um, testy committee sessions with uh, ByteDance before um, in some at the House of Commons. So I think it's going to be a real issue about kind of who controls and puts this content up and what sort of other methods and algorithms by which it's promoted. So go on then, Dylan, what are you working on today? What's the big story today? Could you get the the, uh, the young people of TikTok excited in the results of three by-elections? <laughs> hey, you know, I don't know about that, but, uh, you know, I, I've heard that there's a, there's a lion on the loose in Berlin. That's quite interesting. Yeah, I'll be honest, the lion on the loose in Berlin is probably a better story than uh, the Tories' yeah. old Uxbridge. Is that what you're looking yeah. at today? How, 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 yeah. What's been your biggest story that's, that's had more views than anything else that really takes off? So we can try and um, copy that. I would say that there's there's three main things that I've seen which have just been insane. Uh, first of all, the submarine situation. I've posted about six, seven videos on on that whole situation. Hundred mil, hundred million views in total over those wow. videos. Um, the line Saudi Arabia that did fifty something million, and then when uh, Russia first invaded Ukraine. I kind of did an explainer video one on, I think that the hook was, here's why no one's going to come and save Ukraine or help Ukraine. And that did 55 million. Wow. Um, yeah. So I think, again, I think it's, it's important to remember that yeah. TikTok is just a platform. And I know that the name is thrown around like, oh, you get your news from TikTok. And so it's like a little silly way to say it. But um, I think TikTok has kind of evolved yeah, as yeah, a platform yeah. and it's content creators um, on the platform, which which really matter. Um, yeah, I thought that was just important to mention. James Hill from The Spectator, Eleni Correa from Politico. And you can read all the stories we're discussing if you just hit the links in the podcast description. And to read them, obviously, you need to subscribe to The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash times event box. Up next, we pick over those big by-election results. to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top-tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. 
You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Lost two, held one. A mixed picture, but it could have been worse for Rishi Sunak. The Tories losing two safe seats in yesterday's by-elections. Uh, let's focus on the bad news first. The Conservatives sucker suffering a record loss in Selby and Ainsty, where Labour's 25-year-old Keir Mather overturned a majority of 20,000 to win. Mather, Keir Alexander, Labour Party, 16,456. Meanwhile, uh, several hundred miles south, the Lib Dems overturned a 19,000 Tory majority to win in Somerton and Froome. I do hereby declare that Sarah Joanne Dyke has been duly elected as the Member of Parliament for the Somerton and Froome constituency. And the Conservatives did manage to hold on to Boris Johnson's former seat in Uxbridge and South Ryslip in West London, but only just by 495 votes. I hereby declare that the said Steve Tuckwell is duly elected. So, uh, we will take a look at the uh, impact of these results. We'll speak to senior members of the front bench for both the Conservatives and the Labour Party. Uh, but first, Patrick Maguire, Times Red Box editor, soon to be Times columnist and Times Radio senior political correspondents. Nice. Long old business car, Patrick. Well, nice to be here. It's nice to have you with us. Many, as many titles as Angela Rayner <laughs> is, my, uh, is, my, is my aim. Well, congratulations, anyway. And uh, Sir John Curtis, Professor of Politics at the University of Strathclyde, uh, joins as well. Hi, John. Good morning to you, Matt. Uh, John, crunch the numbers for us on this. in in Because there's obviously, you know, there's majorities, there's swings. Which are the numbers that matter? Which are the ones that we should be quoting to our friends to sound clever in the pub tonight? Well, let me give you three. Um, statistic number one is if we take the average fall in the Conservative vote across all three by-elections, including the better result in Uxbridge, on average, the Conservative vote was down by 21 points uh, yesterday. That is slightly higher than the 18-point loss that the Conservatives are currently registering in the opinion polls. So in the round, there is little in these results to make us question the message of the opinion polls that the Conservatives are in a deep electoral hole. Um, statistic number two is that the swing in Selby and in Anstey is the second highest swing from Conservative Labour in by-election history. Um, the only other better performance this was by under Tony Blair in 1995 in Dudley. And there were a couple of other by-elections in which Labour did not almost as well as they did uh, in Selby. Now, of course, that's not a happy precedent for the Conservative Party because we all know what happened in the 1997 general election. And the third statistic I will quote is that the Liberal Democrats have now won four by-elections in this parliament, three of them with record or near-record swings, including in Somerton yesterday. The last time the Liberal Democrats won four seats from the Conservatives, you've guessed it, the 1992 to 1997 parliament. So now, none of this guarantees that the Conservatives will lose the next election, but at the moment at least, 
the the message of the polls is confirmed and the pattern of the results is unhelpfully similar to the pattern of the results of the 1992-97 parliament, which is the last time the Conservatives were ejected out of office by the electorate. They're three great stats. Uh, thank you for that, John. Well, they're all great, Patrick, unless you're Rishi Sunak. Uh, so you're, you're, I know your phone's been red hot this morning. What are, what are the Tories saying this morning uh, in terms of trying to spin this positively? Well, look, as we both know, Conservative MPs need no excuse or can delude themselves on the flimsiest evidence. And Uxbridge, I think, fits into that category. And as John was saying, look, the big story, let's not lose sight of it. It's like looking directly into the sun. It's too painful to acknowledge if you're a journalist who likes novelty or you're a Tory MP who doesn't want to acknowledge you're going to lose the next general election by a landslide. The polls are right. The national polls are right. That's the big lesson from last night. But Rishi Sunak is talking about Uxbridge because for two reasons. One, it suggests... There are wedge issues the Conservatives can use to, uh, to, to beat Labour on localised issues, be that running against unpopular Labour local authorities, uh, environmental policies that are perceived as burdening working people with the costs, etc., etc. Um, and the second thing is this will energise Tory MPs. They will inevitably find a way, you know, in a now deleted tweet by the uh, Conservative Minister Andrew Bowie, tweets the gif of the actor Jonah Hill uh, sort of, punching the air and saying when Labour, you know, this is Labour celebrating putting on 2,500 votes in Selby, which is a curious way to read a 29% swing uh, <laughs> and a seat that wasn't even on Labour's uh, target list. But there's any, you can read these sort of figures in any way, but it, this will energise the Tories yeah. and convince themselves they now have a formula, if not to win an election, but to deny Labour a majority. And indeed, that's um, something I'm hearing from Labour people as well this morning, that this gives the Tories a, a roadmap to being competitive in some seats, if not across the whole country. It's interesting. Do you think it makes any difference that Uxbridge is in London? And so literally getting you know MPs down there, money, activists, is that just easier than someone that's in North Yorkshire? Does that make any difference? Well, look, I mean, the Labour Party, I know certain people in the Labour Party were worried to a certain extent that uh, their activists would flood into Uxbridge and not go to Selby. But actually, it turns out the reverse was true. Yeah, that, you yeah. know, lots, you saw lots of shadow cabinet ministers in, in both seats. I guess, and, and you know, actually, organisationally, there have been a lot more gripes from within Labour about the state of the Uxbridge campaign than the Selby campaign. Obviously, it's easier for Tories to, to pop over on the on the tube. But where the London thing has made a big difference is that they are, there is a Labour politician in power yeah. for the Tories to run against. So this is, and this is the, the issue of the uh, ULES, the, the, the ultra-low emissions zone, which is basically you can't go into this area with a high-polluting car, and if you do, you have to pay money, a bit like a sort of congestion charge. It's Sadiq Khan's plan to extend it, it already exists in parts of London, extend it out to the West, including Uxbridge. The Tories basically think this is what won it from. This is Steve Tuckwell, the, the new Tory MP in Boris Johnson's old seat. This is what he had to say in his speech. This message from the Uxbridge and South Bicet residences is clear. Sadiq Khan has lost Labour this election in his... And we know that it was his damaging and costly ULES policy that lost them this election. I suppose the, the thing about this, John, is that people voting for the Tories over ULES might well find that ULES still happens. Uh, almost undoubtedly, <laughs> and particularly given, of course, Mr Khan faces an uh, election next spring 
um, and at the centre of his electoral base in London is not the outer London boroughs, but inner London, where uh, improving uh, the quality of air is perhaps a higher concern for voters. Um, we should also bear in mind, by the way, it's one of those kind of little important footnotes of these uh, elections, that while in Uxbridge, it looked as though uh, those who wanted to hang on to their uh, rather polluting cars, who ha- seemed to have had an important role in the election, elsewhere, the Greens did rather well, and indeed in Somerton, despite the Democrat success, achieved their highest level of support in a parliamentary by-election, yet winning 10%. So if there are some voters motivated on one side, there are also some uh, voters seemingly motivated on the other side, but that then certainly um, voters uh, may therefore be uh, diverted from their usual party support because of the increasing support, uh, the increasing role that the environment is playing in their concerns. But I mean, to build on Patrick's wider comments about Labour and why it came unstuck, um, I mean, presumably, when this by-election was called, somebody inside the Labour Party must have spotted, or certainly should have spotted, this potential Achilles heel, um, and should have worked out a strategy for dealing with it, rather than leaving the candidate to try to work out a strategy uh, for themselves. Um, And uh, meanwhile, I think the other question will be asked is, well, why was it, if indeed Labour have a clear commanding lead over the Conservatives and that the electorate have bought into uh, Sakir Starmer as their next Prime Minister, why were they apparently so relatively easily diverted from uh, pursuing that path in the ballot box as a result of what might be regarded as a little local difficulty. And certainly <laughs> um, the Conservatives may be hoping uh, that they can uh, exploit this a bit further. But I think one caution here, in much the same way as we always remind ourselves that when Liberal Democrats do brilliantly in by-elections, as again they did on Thursday, we have to remind ourselves that it's much more difficult for them to concentrate their resources in a general election as opposed to a parliamentary by-election. Equally, we should remember it's much more difficult to make local issues, including arguments about uh, whatever uh, local administrations exist, to make that the centre of a campaign when you've got an overarching general election national campaign going on, which is the campaign that most voters are following. So the different context of a general election, in much the same way as it can make my life more difficult for the Democrats, might also mean that the strategy that the Conservatives pursued in Uxbridge doesn't necessarily have so much potential road yeah. uh, in the context of a general election. John, really good to speak to you. Really appreciate your time today. So John Curtis, Professor of Politics at the University of Strathclyde, really getting under the bonnet of why it's all a bit more complicated than it looks. Patrick McGuire, Times Radio's new senior political correspondent is here. And we're now joined in the studio by Labour's shadow leader of the House of Commons, Thangam Debonair. How are you? I'm all right, thanks, yeah. Everything's, everything's great. Uh, well, my coffee's good. Okay. Uh, and, and yes, I mean, we've, we've had a really great night for the result in Selby and Ainsty with a massive swing, a really he- historic swing to Labour from the Conservatives in a seat which I think nobody would have expected us to stand a chance in even a few weeks ago. That is epic. But then you haven't won the 
seat that everyone did expect you to win. So what's gone wrong? Well, we came within 495 votes and it was a safe Tory seat. I think that's it, you know, again, people would have been surprised to think we even stood a chance a few years ago. And there's no denying the fact, you're going to bring it up, so I might as well bring it in now, that ULES did play a part. I, I do not a lot in, in Oxbridge. I also went up to Selby and Ainsley. And yes, ULES came up, but it wasn't the only thing. I think the context is really important so what's here. So what's the other, what are the other problems that voters it's the cost have living. the Labour Party? It's, well, the cost of living crisis, which is, of course, a Tory cost of living crisis. And if you add on then the fact that the ULES is something that's clear and immediate, when you've got soaring rents and mortgages, food prices are, you know, the inflation rates in the teens still and then you add on ULES, that, that of course was difficult for some people and I think Danny Bills, who's an amazing candidate and I really hope he gets elected at the next election, he stood up for the people of Uxbridge and South Rislip and said they did need a better scrappage scheme and that he couldn't support the scheme as it was. Wasn't it, I mean it's partly, you know, Sadiq Khan's got his policy and he thinks it's the right thing to do to clean up the air and there is, is clearly a problem with, with air quality in London. It didn't help the fact that for several days Keir Starmer couldn't even say whether or not he was in favour of it. Well, I mean, Sadiq Khan, we, we, we devolve power to, to mayors for a good reason. Sadiq Khan is the mayor of London and he quite rightly wants there to be clean air for everyone to breathe. And there's too many people dying of respiratory illnesses prematurely as a result of the pollution in London. I think what's at issue here is the scrappage scheme. And for people who are living on the outskirts where maybe the public transport is not quite as densely packed as it is in the city centre, that's going to be an issue for some working people who really do depend on their cars and don't have enough time between now and when the scheme's due to come in to get a new vehicle or can't afford it. Yeah. And that's the thing, is they can't afford it is on top of a Tory cost of living crisis. I thought it was really interesting though, Matt, that the, the winning Tory candidate, the new MP, didn't mention Rishi Sunak in his speech as far as I could hear. It wasn't a campaign that was about proud Tory achievements. It was one one campaign issue only and that was attacking Labour on ULES. He had nothing positive to contribute at all. Let but, me but, bring in Patrick. But, but it worked though, didn't it? And is not now the worry that the Tories can use this sort of, yes, it's a cynical and negative strategy, but do you not worry, I suppose you're unique in that you're facing the Greens in your constituency, that they're your nearest challenger, but do you not worry that this is a playbook the Tories can re return to again and again and again? They can just point to green policies that are perceived, as you say, to be adding to the cost of living for working people and say, look, well, Labour would, Labour would do X, Y, Z, they'll just make it worse. And that clearly, even if it's cynical, reductive, and it's not a positive offer, has worked here, do you worry it might work again? Well, I worry also about whether or not climate change is going to get tackled by any government other than the Labour government. We are only going to get big climate action if we have a change of government to a Labour government. And that means bringing people with us, though. We need a just transition. You you have to bring people with you because if you don't, it's not going to work. Of course, I worry that the Tories are going to run a cynical campaign. They're obviously on the way out. They look like they've given up. They're barely governing at the moment. In business questions yesterday, which I shadow as shadow leader of the House, I was able to point out any number of bills that the government has failed to do anything with since the Queen's speech. They're about to do a King's speech in November and where's the progress on the schools bill, the mental health bill, the transport bill, the renters reform bill? These are key issues. And for people in Uxbridge and South Rislip who were telling me about their skyrocketing rents, they really needed to hear that someone was on their side. So some of the people that I spoke to who are voting for us were doing so because they know that we would be on their side. We would bring a renters reform charter and we would also be tackling the cost of living crisis. And part of that, Patrick, 
it is tackling climate change. Because when you tackle climate change, when you do it and you bring people with you, you're actually helping to create a world that is cleaner, that is safer, that has less pollution, that has great jobs, that reduces our dependency on foreign oil and gas, that keeps people's homes warm. And, and that's really important and tackles climate change. But it has to be done from a position of hope rather than threat. And I think that's really important and part of what the Labour government is offering. Does it not worry you a bit that some of the concern, and I know some of your colleagues share this concern, that Keir Starmer lacks, and it's, it's, not, it's not about excitement, hope, I think, optimism, a sense that, I mean, even when he was at Tony Blair's thing this week, he said the big difference between now and 1997, in 1997 you could say things can only get better. And he said you can't, you know, that's not where we are now. And you just think if the opposition can't even paint an optimistic, exciting picture for people, actually what happens is the first time a Labour policy comes crashing up against the electorate, people don't vote for you. Keir set out five missions which I think are transformative for this country. He wants us to get to net zero energy by 2030. That is massive. I won't list them all. No, I'm just going to pick on one. And because you're not, I know, you're not going to let me read out a list. (laughs) Uh, Incidentally, please don't let the Tories read out their list either. But, you know, I think this is really transformative. I've mentioned what that does for people's homes. It also transforms people's health. And that's just one of our five missions. It will transform the country. And I I firmly believe that in years to come, my great nieces and great nephews are going to be looking back on the next Labour government under Keir Starmer, who nobody predicted was going to be able to do this in one term. And so, and they will say it was that Labour government that transformed the country and took us to net zero so with think, all the you benefits. you think the lesson of what happened last night is that you should go harder on green policy? And bring people with us. We have to do both. And you you haven't done that so far. We have to do both. And we came very close to doing that in Uxbridge and South Ryslip, but we had 495 votes adrift. And obviously, I I would have liked us to have won. But I congratulate our winning candidate in Selby and ANC, Keir May, that I'm looking forward to welcoming him to Parliament soon. Thank you. Really good to see you. I know you've got to get off. You've got a busy day. And then you can finally go to bed, having been up media... Uh, appearances all overnight. Thank you, Deminair. Really good to see you. Uh, Labour's you. shadow leader of the House of Commons. So, everything's fine in the Labour Party. What about in the Tory party? Let's speak to the Education Minister, Claire Coutinho. Hi, Claire. Hi, Matt. Go on then, tell me everything's fine. <laughs> so, well, you know, we had a difficult night. We had one good result. We had two difficult results. And where we lose elections, it's always disappointing. It's always disappointing to, to lose an election. We've got to be humble. We've got to listen. We've got to work hard. And the truth was, in both of those seats, there's a lot of our voters that didn't come out and vote for us. So we've got to win them back and make sure that we energise them for the next election. Um, If you ask me where the hope is, I do think there is hope because in the one area where Labour are in power, so they have had to set out policies, uh, they were roundly rejected because they do have uh, this policy, the US policy, which is deeply unpopular. And despite the electorate repeatedly telling them it's deeply unpopular, they've stuck with it and they're trying to ram it through, which is going to harm working families. And, you know, where I do think that gives me cause for hope and to say, look, we can do more is if we can... Uh, deliver on our promises to people to deal with some of the things that we know they are really, really worried about, like the NHS, uh, like inflation. And as we get closer to an election and Keir can't be a professional fence sitter, which he is at the moment. Bear in mind, he doesn't have a view on public sector pay. Uh, he doesn't have a view on whether inflation should be capped at 2%. He doesn't have a view on ULES. Um, he will have to set out some policies. And I think that's what could give us hope because we can talk about our record, we can deliver for people, and we can also start talking about Labour policies when they decide to come up with some. Um, isn't isn't the problem that you, <laughs> Rishi Sunak and the Conservatives, do have a view on all those things and you're 20 points behind in the polls. And actually, if you look at, if you take into account the swing... Uh, in Uxbridge, in Somerton Froome and in Selby, as John Curtis was telling us, uh, you are down 
uh, 21 points on average, uh, which is actually worse than the national polls suggest. Well, yes, I mean, by-elections are difficult for sitting governments. And as I said, like, part of the problem is our yeah, voters the, didn't but come Claire, out. But the last time by-elections were this bad for a sitting government, John Major led your party to a catastrophic defeat in 1997. And as I said, the problem was our voters you know, didn't come out for us. And we've got to work on that. We've got to make sure uh, that we are delivering on their, their problems, which is what the Prime Minister is dedicated to doing. But the only thing that I will say, Matt, is it wasn't like they were easily attracted to Keir Starmer. So if you look at Selby for example, he got less votes in Selby than Jeremy Corbyn did in 2017. So I don't think he's attracting people, but we, of course, we've got to work hard and make sure that we can re-energise uh, our voters. And I do think, you know, sorting out public sector pay, uh, dealing with inflation and the cost of living, those are two things that people talk to me a lot. That's two things that they're concerned about, and that's exactly what we're focused on doing. Uh, there's lots of talk that uh, Rishi Sunak is planning a big reset in the autumn, uh, possibly with a reshuffle. What do you think he needs to do to take this pretty bad set of results and get election ready in, what, six months' time? Put Claire Coutinho in cabinet, I think. <laughs> well, uh, look, I think reshuffles are for Prime Minister and the Chief Whip, so I haven't got a scoopies about that. But I did will say, when I talk to you constituents and people around the country, I don't think it's that we've got the priorities wrong. People are worried about the NHS. They are worried about cost of living. They are worried about illegal immigration. But he's only been in for nine months. We are seeing him turn a corner on some of those things. So, for example, inflation this week, we saw it starting to fall. Uh, wages are now going to be higher than inflation and we need to keep going with that uh, and for public sector pay across lots of different uh, bodies we've now reached a deal so I do think that is the thing we need to make sure that we're delivering on the priorities the priorities are in the right place but people want to see them delivered and that's what I know he's going to be focused on it's what we're all focused on to make sure that we can help people with things like the cost of living uh, and also make sure that we can smooth their ability to get their GP appointments their NHS appointments and other things as well. Do you worry that in 12 months' time you won't be in government, might not be an MP? Does that ever cross your mind? Well, I mean, obviously, we will work really hard to be in government. We believe in what we're doing. We believe in conservative policies, and that's what we are fighting for. But the country's been through really difficult times. Uh, you know, it's really hard on families at the moment when you think about what prices have done. Um, and I think that's why, personally, I'm really passionate about supporting Rishi Sunak, because he was the guy talking about inflation two years ago when no one else was. Uh, and uh, you can see in the figures this week that the work that he's put in is starting to deliver, and we just need to keep going with that. Patrick. Claire, do you agree with Johnny Mercer that 25 is too young to be an MP? Well, you know, I was looking at his comments. That isn't quite what he said. He wasn't commenting um, on the youth. He was talking about life experience because I think Keir, um, this is new Keir, not, not Keir old Mather. Keir. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Keir, I think, has come straight from Oxbridge to working from West Streeting and into Parliament. Now, we've got 25-year-olds in our side as well. You've got people like Jacob Young, who is a technician in a chemical plant. You've got people like Sarah Brickliffe, who managed a shop and was a councillor before she came into Parliament. And, you know, Johnny himself was a vet. He served in Afghanistan. He's very passionate about people having different kinds of experiences when they come in, so they can relate to people. That's the point that he was making. But I don't have a problem with any young person coming to Parliament. Last time we had, I think, a 24-year-old and a 69-year-old elected, and I thought that was absolutely brilliant. Uh, just finally, Claire, uh, this week James Cleverly made a public plea uh, to remain as uh, Foreign Secretary. He appealed to both the Prime Minister and the King, even, uh, <laughs> who signs off reshuffles. Uh, do you want to use this opportunity to make a public plea to either stay as an <laughs> Education Minister or, or have you got uh, your eye on another job? Look, I love my job. It's, I work with children and families every day. It's something that I did before uh, politics and I absolutely love it. I'm delivering the single largest ever expansion in childcare uh, and it's an absolutely brilliant job. 
Okay, really good to speak to you, Claire Coutinho there. Uh, the Education Minister, uh, like she was saying, responsible for children, families and wellbeing. Um, finally, Patrick McGuire. In fact, we're going to hear from uh, uh, Sir Ed Davey a bit later on, so we'll get the Lib Dem uh, perspective. Um, as, you know, this is a real full stop in the sort of parliamentary year. MPs going off for the summer break. They've all got lots to think about. Yeah, plenty to think about. If you're a Conservative MP, I think you'll spend most of the most of the summer thinking about whether you'll still I'll, have... I'll take game... you LinkedIn. Well, yes, exactly. <laughs> you'll still be gainfully employed and wondering if you know any headhunters. Um, but look, I think there is enough to console each of the parties in this. And I think actually what we'll hear most over the weekend is both Labour and the Conservatives talking about Uxbridge. The Conservatives saying this shows that we can still win or more likely they'll... You know, realists, I was speaking to one such realist this morning who says this: the best we can hope for now is a hung parliament and we can see how we might campaign negatively for one. And then this Labour thing, uh, the Labour Party will cite Uxbridge. Certain elements of the Labour Party will cite Uxbridge and say, look, this is the risk if we're perceived to be soft and fuzzy and woolly on green issues and that our, if our green policies are perceived to be expensive, this is the electoral risk and that'll spark a big argument inside the Labour Party. It actually goes back to the, a lot of, so much of it is about the fact they wouldn't stick to it. You know, if you've got Sadiq Khan who does, you know, win as one in London, this is his policy. The fence-sitting thing seems pretty damaging. The fact you then have a Labour candidate running against the Labour policy, you know, and then similarly we've, we've now got on welfare, you've got Keir Starmer, uh, um, keeping a policy that he thinks is terrible, and then you end up saying, "Well, what's the point of all of this?" And look, and this is why devolution for Labour is a double-edged sword. I've written this before. It means you have Labour politicians with their own personal mandates, Sadiq Khan, Andy Burnham in particular, mm. with their own agendas, uh, running priorities and rhetoric that sometimes cut across. Yeah. Keir, they're the one part of the Labour Party that Keir Starmer can't control. And we're seeing with ULES, which to be fair was a policy imposed upon uh, Sadiq Khan by Grant Shapps, who made it a condition of Transport for London's refunding round. But nonetheless, you're seeing the risks. A Labour politician in uh, the north of England cited Andy Burnham's clean air zone yeah. this morning. You know, this is an issue that's going to rear its head again and again and again. It's only going to become a bigger point of tension should Labour get into government. Throughout the morning, we've been analysing the fallout. Where well, the Conservatives lost two former safe seats but held one. The polling expert, Sir John Curtis, gave me his three top three stats that we should take note of. On average, the Conservative vote was down by 21 points yesterday. That is slightly higher than the 18-point loss that the Conservatives are currently registering in the opinion polls. So in the round, there is little in these results to make us question the message of the opinion polls that the Conservatives are in a deep electoral hole. Statistic number two, the swing in Selby and in Anstey is the second highest swing from Conservative Labour in by-election history. And the third statistic I will quote is that the Liberal Democrats have now won four by-elections in this parliament, three of them with record or near-record swings. As John Curtis said with his top three stats, well, Labour has blamed uh, Sadiq Khan's ultra-low emission zone scheme for their by-election defeat in Boris Johnson's former seat of Uxbridge and South Ryslip. Well, Labour's shadow leader of the House of Commons, Sangam Debonair, told me it wasn't the only reason they didn't win. 
we came within 495 votes and it was a safe Tory seat. I think there's, it, you know, again, people would have been surprised to think we even stood a chance a few years ago. And there's no denying the fact, you're going to bring it up, so I might as well bring it in now, that ULES did play a part. I, I door knocked a lot in, in Oxbridge. I also went up to Selby and Ainsley. And yes, ULES came up, but it wasn't the only thing. Uh, Labour's Sangam Debonair there. Well, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak says this result shows the next generation is not a done deal. Conservative Minister Claire Coutinho told me there is still hope. We had a difficult night. We had one good result. We had two difficult results. And where we lose elections, it's always disappointing. It's always disappointing to, to lose an election. We've got to be humble. We've got to listen. We've got to work hard. And the truth was, in both of those seats, there's a lot of our voters that didn't come out and vote for us. So we've got to win them back and make sure that we energise them for the next election. So I do think there is hope because in the one area where Labour are in power, so they have had to set out policies, uh, they were roundly rejected. Well, in a moment, we speak to the leader of the Liberal Democrats, Sir Ed Davey. It comes after the Lib Dems won Somerton and Foom by more than 11,000 votes. Uh, he's been out doing another one of his stunts. It's time for a general election to end this Conservative circus. It's time to get these clowns out of number 10. Five, four, three, two, one. <laughs> Ed, uh, how would you rank the uh, circus cannon alongside your your cannon of daft by-election stunts? <laughs> uh, you know, I think it just gives everyone a smile, don't they? Uh, uh, listen, I, I think it's one of the better ones. Uh, <laughs> I think they're all pretty good. Uh, you've got cheering going on here. Uh, but uh, I'm still fond of the blue wall when I took the orange mallet to the blue wall. Uh, I think that, that sort of kicked it all off and it... It showed that we are the competitors to the Tories in in parts of the country that no other party can reach. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it, it's fun and it's it gets a message. And I think the message today was people are fed up of the the messing around with the Tories. And you know, people talk talk to them uh, talk about the Tories as if they're clowns. This is a political circus. So it, it, the stunt actually t they tend the best ones come from what voters are saying. I want to ask you about how you trans. Uh, how do you translate these wins, these undeniably big wins, big swings, in uh, by-elections into making significant gains across the country? Because you're not going to have every Lib Dem candidate, every Lib Dem activist, def descending on a single seat come a general election. Yeah, well, um, if you look at the local elections uh, in May 2022 and then May 2023, those elections are across the whole country. Uh, and in those elections the last two years, we've done extraordinarily well when we weren't able to concentrate our resources. But we had local campaign teams with local champions standing for council and uh, the next election will be standing for parliament. And we were able to win in a lot of areas. So, um, you know, I actually don't think that when you look at the evidence, that point is valid. And we're building up in the seats we think we can win. Um, we're building up really strong uh, local campaign teams. So I'm increasingly confident that these results show to people that, you know, we're back again. And here we are winning in the, in the West Country. Um, I was looking at, because uh, obviously lots of people joined parallels with uh, what happened in the 90s, that went up to 1997. In fact, you're very close to the, the constituency of, uh, of Yeovil and Paddy Ashdown when he was the, the king of the West Country. Yeah. 
Um, a year out from a general election in 1996, Lib Dems were getting 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, in some polls, 20% in the polls. You ended up getting 17% of the polls in the actual election a year later. Why are you still stuck on nine? You're struggling to get out of single digits. Given, given the clowns, given everything you've said about the Conservative Party, why, are you, why do you still struggle to make any inroads into the national opinion polls? Matt, first of all, I would question your analysis of the polls and the history and the, and current, actually. But let, let's not bore um, our details. I just think you're wrong on the figures you gave. I'm not. I'm looking but, at them now. I'm looking at them now, Ed. In May 96, you were on uh, 16%, 15%, 21%, 15%, 30%, 70%, all much higher than what you're currently polling. Yeah, but we're, we're, we're polling higher than you were saying. That, that was really my d- disagreement with you. But, I mean, the truth, the truth is, um, I, when I look at these types of elections, whether it's the parliamentary by-elections or the local elections, I just see us winning. And, you know, it's real votes in real ballot boxes, as we say. And uh, I think we are, we are seeing ourselves uh, really coming, coming forward. And, you know, l- let's see. I mean, uh, what we won't do is take voters for granted. You know, we are going to work hard for every vote in every seat, uh, and I think you will be surprised, uh, and lots of people will be surprised by how well we do. Um, obviously, one of the reasons you've done so well in these by-elections, in particular this one at Summerton Foom, is because of the total collapse of the Labour vote. Um, and, uh, you know, the Labour Party have clearly gained by squeezing the Lib Dem vote in, other, uh, in Selby and so on. Have you had any conversations with Keir Starmer about that? No. Uh, in the past, there have been no packs or deals. There haven't been any now, and there won't be any in the future. The truth is, voters can see in a particular area which is the party to beat the Conservatives. And what I'm finding, wherever I go in the country, people want to get, see the back of this government. Uh, they're absolutely fed up to the back teeth. They think the Conservatives take them for granted, completely out of touch and have messed up the health service and our economy. And so local voters, knowing they want to get rid of conservatives, they look at who's strong in a particular area, in, in the, what I'd call the blue wall seats in the home counties, in Hertfordshire and Oxfordshire and Cambridgeshire and Buckinghamshire and Bedfordshire and Surrey and quite a few other areas. It's Liberal Democrats who are taking on the conservatives. And now what's exciting about this result is in the West Country, it's the Liberal Democrats who are the ones taking on the conservatives. And that's why I think we're going to do better than than the people like you seem to think we're going to do. Well, no, if anything... And what, and what, why? We're, we're winning lots of uh, support from traditional Labour voters. I suppose my point is that you say you want to get the Conservatives out. If you hadn't have stood in Uxbridge, uh, your candidate there got 526 votes. If they'd all gone to Labour instead, Labour would have taken that seat. Well, you know, I think it's important that people do stand. Labour stood here in Somerton and Froome. Um, and uh, that's their right. And they should give people... We, we should give people the right for people to vote Liberal Democrat. We had a great candidate, Blaze, in, in Uxbridge, and Matt did a great job in Selby. Um, but, you know, we, we devoted all our resources here down in Sumpton Froome because it's where we thought we could win, and we were right, weren't we? So, yeah, well, yeah exactly. So you're, you're sort of keeping your side of the bargain and getting the toys out. It's Keir Starmer who's letting the side up. What do you think that Keir Starmer needs to do to, to, uh, to make sure he, he does win seats like Uxbridge and that you, that you and he get the Tories out, in your words? Well, uh, I'm not going to give advice to Mr Starmer. That's for, for his own party. What I would say about the Uxbridge uh, by-election, because I, I'm an MP in a, in a Greater London seat in Kingston and Surbiton, and my constituents are hit by this ULES extension, and I've been campaigning to stop it. 
I've, I've said that it's a very badly designed policy, that it's come at the wrong time. And I, I talk to people who are really hit by it. So I meet people who have not been uh, had the money to be able to replace their car over um, many years now. They're often on, on low wages, sometimes on minimum wages. People doing caring jobs, for example. And they just can't afford this £12.50 a day charge from the Labour mayor. So, you know, um, if, if Labour politicians do this sort of thing, don't be surprised when voters say we, we don't want it. Um, in a seat, because clearly what's happened here is there have been some seats, you know, Conservatives facing Labour, Conservatives facing Lib Dems. What should a voter do who wants to get the Tories out if it's a choice between a Labour candidate and a Lib Dem candidate? And I'm not going to uh, tell people what to do. They can make up their own minds. We'll put forward our candidates. We'll put forward our, our policies. Um, uh, so, I, you know... Why won't you say vote I, I, Lib Dem? Well, well, I want to vote. I want everyone to vote Lib Dem. Of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the Liberal never going to lead in that. <laughs> um, but what I will do is we have limited resources, as you know. You know we don't get ex-Egyptian government ministers giving us £5 million pounds like the Tories do. Uh, we don't have those sorts of resources, so we have to put our limited resources in places where we think we can win. And I'll, you know, I'll tell you a secret: that's not in 650 seats. We can't win all 650 seats. So we'll put uh, our resources in place where uh, we think we have a really good chance of winning. And what's exciting about this result is in more and more seats. It's across the West Country now. I, I think if I was a Conservative MP, I'd be worried about the challenge from the Liberal Democrats. But it's interesting that if there's a seat with a choice between Lib Dems and Labour, it sounds like you're not going to bother in those seats and you've got to co- concentrate on Tory facing seats. We're going to have a, a candidate there who's going to fly the Liberal Democrat flag and be proud to do so. But alone, do so. by the sound of it. Uh, well, <laughs> listen, you're, you're putting words into my mouth and what I'm telling you is that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you for free. You, you should be so grateful about that, honestly. I'm telling you what we're going to do. We're, we're going to go and fight where we think we've got the best chances. That's what I would call logic, right? Yeah. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Let me know what you think. You can email me matt at times.radio. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualised podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting and a sprinkle of top-tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday.